Hello, you're listening to Failed Architecture, a podcast on architecture and the real world. My name is Mark Minkian. I'm here with Charlie Clemos. Hi. And Rene Boer. Hi. And Rene will be taking the lead for this episode, in which we will discuss what is happening today to large modernist housing estates from the 1960s and 70s, many of which have been either renovated, upgraded or demolished. Uh, Rene, could you say something about what we will delve into today? Yeah, for sure. So our point of departure is the, the Kleibrug flat, which is this uh, early 70s high-rise block uh, in Amsterdam's Belmer neighborhood, which is a large-scale modernist urban expansion scheme to the to the southeast of the city. And it was initially built as a, as a future utopia, but uh, the Belmer went into rapid decline throughout the 80s and 90s. And Kleibrug was actually one of the last apartment buildings to be taken care of in like these comprehensive regeneration plans, right? And the owner, which is a housing association, had already removed uh, the inhabitants, but then realized didn't have the means to either renovate or uh, even demolish the building. So yeah, it was empty and investment companies bought it uh, for just uh, for just a euro and then started to incrementally renovate the building and the surrounding public spaces and then started to sell the, these yet unrenovated apartments for, uh, for, yeah, for low prices. And after the renovation was completed, it started to win all these prizes, like the European Union Architecture Award and the Dutch Design Awards. And yeah, so everybody was actually praising uh, the project's affordability, but it was soon reported that yeah, many of these apartments um, were actually being rented out for astronomical prices. Wow. So from DIY to buy to let. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, Charlie, for... I remember that I think it was the first time you visited Amsterdam. We did a little failed architecture trip into the Belmer. Um, what, what do you recall from from that visit? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was a very nice day to to go there. Late summer, early autumn. Um, it looked very attractive in in that light. Much bigger than than a lot of other modernist housing developments in London, where I was coming from at the time. Um, it you know it, it seemed a little bit more positive, I suppose. The kind of outlook looked you know a little less bleak. But but yeah, I mean like the ho the whole thing um, to me feels like something that we at Fair Architecture have um, really taken on as as a kind of symbolic of our, um, our what we're what we're doing, what we're researching. It kind of encapsulates quite a lot of the key themes that we deal with. Do you, would you agree with that, Mark? Yeah. It It's such an emblematic example of what a lot of people perceive as failed architecture, you know, but um, it's also a really good case of trying to show that, no, this is not just about architecture. This is about so much more. It's about unforeseen historical developments. It's about policy. It's about cultural changes. It's about socioeconomic um, housing, dynamics. Housing policies. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so Belmar has been very helpful in, uh, in, in, in shaping our thinking and also in uh, bringing our points across to, to a large audience. And um, well, you, if you look at our website, um, there will, you will find a lot of articles about the Belmer. One I remember is, um, I think the title is A Reputation Blown to Smithereens, which really talks about the, the image of the Belmer. Um, But Rene, I think we also have some music from the Belmar, right? So why no more cocky akadah? Why no more cocky baby plant my bassa? So when it take come marika, set it so deep for us, my set a strap. She said Ulana, Ulana.
Hey, so Rene, what were we uh, listening to just then? Yeah, so these were the, the first seconds of Unana, which was a 2014 internet hit by some young rappers uh, called SBMG. Uh, and actually the music video was largely shot on the construction site of uh, Kleiberg, featuring some elements of both the renovated and the yet-to-be-renovated parts of the flat. And uh, they actually uh, were interviewed uh, recently, and in which they said, like, yeah, the old inhabitants of Kleiberg have been misled. They had to move to other estates because it was supposed to be demolished, which in the end never happened. And now it's full of artists and doctors. And if you have a lot of money, and only if you have a lot of money, you can create your own mansion there. Yeah. So who are we talking to today? Yeah, so in this episode, we will visit the renovated uh, Kleiberg flat with Fenne Haakma-Wagner. She's an architect who actually grew up in the flat in the 70s and 80s, but she hasn't been back for about 20 years. And we'll talk to Owen Hatterley, author of books like Militant Modernism, about what happened to, the, to Kleiberg. And he will also compare uh, Kleiberg to other examples in the, in the UK. So these are just two different takes on the same topic of modernism 50 years on, more or less, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so a few months ago, like on the coldest day of the year, uh, we actually met up with Fenna and we took the metro to the Belmer together, where she spent uh, so many years of her life, but actually didn't return to in decades. Jesus! The first thing that hits me is that it's, well, that the metro station is different. It has a higher, different ceiling, so I don't recognize that. And that the flat is grey again. When I lived there the last few years, it had been painted white to try and do something to make it uh, all a bit better. But it was not a very serious effort. And uh, my mother, amongst others, fought really hard uh, to not have the, the, the flat painted with lots of different colors and swirls and wildness. So as we leave the metro station and walk towards the imposing flat through the snow, Fenner recalls what it was like to live in Kleiburg. I lived here from 1974 until uh, 1989 when I started studying in Delft. Important childhood years I spent here and I spent my whole playing outside period uh, here. So I think the Balmers really influenced me in, in every, in every uh, part of me. And I have to say that, that uh, the, the world has been a bit of a disappointment since. And the house that we had, uh, had been assigned uh, which was a house where my father could pick from a certain amount of houses and he always explained that he made a map that, that had the, the uh, honeycomb structure on and he would look where, can I, where do I have the best views, where can I see the trains the best, where can I see the furthest and where's the best sun and he, he chose this flat on the ninth floor, number 806. And there was a lot of space for children and openness and freedom. There was real freedom. When, when it became more diverse, uh, the, the flat, and it was diverse and it became quickly more diverse, um, it, it became even nicer. And, and, and kind of the whole flat, eh, where everybody has the same flat, everybody lives behind the same facade. And also interiorized. So the flats, the, the plants are, are same. Sometimes they're, they're mirrored or sometimes they're a bit smaller or bigger. But everybody, all these different people, they all had the same flats. So we felt really quite equal. 
and uh, we had Chinese people on the third floor that we played a lot with and we saw the most crazy uh, kung fu films so we've seen a lot of kung fu films and we had Chinese food all these that is the nice thing about people coming into another country and trying to make a living and trying to reconnect to a place often it was open door and so people walked in and out of each other's and these were really different people with different lifestyles so from as, as long early as I can remember we had Chinese Suriname food Chinese food I think my parents moved in 2000 and literally I haven't been back never so, been back here not since 2000 so that is 18 years incredible uh, yeah 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 it's uh, I mean you can still recognize it I think if I would stand in front of the flat and and face upwards that maybe I have a moment where I think oh yeah and that's what we did we walked through the snow right up to the flat but then also some less positive memories started to come back and I have a lot of dreams about it and, and, and it's funny that it's not there doesn't matter uh, it was the, the bit the ramp that was built for the SRV this kind of neighborhood uh, van that would serve the flats and he would come up on a ramp with all his goodies, milk, bread, whatever and uh, go into the street in the sky and he would serve so people could buy things with him but he couldn't make the turning circle on the ramp so he never got on there so we never had really, <laughs> he never served his flat. The shopping mall came later. So in the beginning there was only Ganshoef, which was quite uh, far away to get a bread. So for people who lived here in the beginning, it was super inconvenient. That took a while <laughs> before, uh, also before the metro to start going. So people were really huh, much more than architecture. The fact that we didn't have infrastructure or any services didn't help much it became a bit more run down slowly quickly <laughs> quicker the council wasn't spending I mean there was so much of everything to keep up and there were so many in internal streets and places that nobody was really looking after nobody felt it was theirs no sense of ownership a garage that was mostly empty on the top floors in the 1970s the ideas of the modernists were already going out of vogue so it was really bad <laughs> bad timing and uh, Aldo van Eyck was filmed here somewhere here crying that he felt so sorry for the children to grow up here but while Aldo van Eyck was shedding his tears on the site Kleiberg became a special home to many different kinds of people it wasn't really a community as, uh, in the sense that we were looking after each other or, or controlling it felt way more free than a community we, uh, it, it was quite anonymous, but in, amongst this anonymity we had lots of friends and people we knew, older people, younger people, kids. I had children all over this flat and on the gallery would walk all the way and, and, and pick up everybody and go back and back and around until we, uh, we got every, rounded everyone up and then we would play. And they were everywhere, so it, but they weren't necessarily next to each other. Yeah. And there were a lot of weirdos as well. Already at the time. Yeah. yeah, it was a wonderful place for weirdos, and we need to build for 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 people that are for outcasts, for people who are don't want to engage with society. These people need to live yeah. and need a place, and they had really 
Yeah, they could live here, nobody bothered them, so it was really good. And as we continued to talk, we sneaked inside and took the elevator to the top floor, looking for Fena's old family home. Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, we can actually go onto the galleries. I don't know. I think we can't go around the corner. But we'll see. Maybe we can. Do you recognize the view? Uh, only the flat. So I recognize the view, the, the, the perspective. But you can see with the concrete and they, ah, they really quite chiseled it off. These uh, pebbled ash bits, they were there. They are original. This, this is nicer than what it was actually now with the glass panels in. There's nothing different here. Uh, a few houses more. I think it is this. 806. This one. This one. This is the one. Yeah, this is my house. This is it. Yeah, yeah. No, this is different. This was an open space connection with the with the living space. Here was the kitchen, living space. Here was my parents' bedroom, in open relation with the living room, which is quite old. This was my sister's bedroom, and then there was a whole corridor, and my bedroom be on the other side, on the balcony side. But it feels like the new tenants still have to move in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, or it's being rented, I can easily imagine, because it's obviously been decorated, so somebody's owned it. And I think it's, uh, yeah, this is it. While we were living in quite blissfully, there, the, the architects were uh, talking about how, what terrible life these people must have to live here, what, what, uh, how sad they felt for us. And uh, it, was, it wasn't <laughs> sad at all, we had a great time. We went inside further down the gallery, where Fena started to explain that while people enjoyed living there, no investments were made in the building at all. And after many years without any maintenance, things started to become quite problematic. They made it unlivable. They weren't looking after it. My parents, when they had friends over, they had to clean the lift themselves and things like that. And so it was slowly getting more and more. And then, and then they started slowly letting people out. They, they, the lifts weren't uh, upgraded. The lifts stopped, stopped working. So the, the, the council stopped investing in this flat eh, for a, a long time. And it was clear that they wanted to demolish it. They, 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 they were making plans. Everything had to be different. And so they made it really hard for people that were still fighting to keep things. It was almost empty. Eh? There, there were still a few people living here. And they closed off also the possibility to walk all the way along the gallery. So the gallery, you could walk, the, the access, uh, access gallery, you could walk all along, all the 100, 100, 100, well, is it 500 meters of the flat or 400 meters of the flat and back. And that was suddenly stopped. So they closed that off. And it made, actually, the community less good. If I would come home and I would use this uh, lift space, and I, there would be somebody quite scary with me. I was suddenly blocked in. So that kind of it made it even more unsafe. And all this kind of temporary measures, they, they just lost it. They felt like they had no idea but to demolish it. They couldn't come up with any idea with how to, uh, how to deal uh, with this excess space. So all the things that had quality also lost their quality. And so my parents had to move. That was hand. The, the threat of the bulldozer was uh, coming at you. But it was never demolished. And as the voice of SBMG explained as well, people left as the demolition was looming, 
but then remained empty for a long time before it was finally redeveloped over the last few years. Your parents were living here uh, like in, in pretty bad conditions. Don't you think that it should have been like invested at the time that well, people are still living there? Of course. Kleiberg was actually not so bad if you compare it maybe to some other flats. Hey, the position was good, and, and uh, but also there were still a lot of people uh, living there. It could have easily been uh, rescued with the people who lived there, in there, still there, because there was a lot of Balmer believers uh, in the flat. But that also never happened, and Fenna's parents now live somewhere else. Looking out from the top floor gallery, Fenna reflects on the overall regeneration of the Balmer. But it feels like just your normal suburban village. Yeah. It could be anywhere in Holland. So the whole character is really demolished. Do you feel it's a pity it no, has all been demolished? It's claimed much has improved socially. I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm not convinced. Um, I think the flats didn't need to be <laughs> brought down to, uh, to achieve that, if it's true. Um, I, I, it's Are you happy this one has been saved? <laughs> I, it at least proves that we were right that it didn't need to be demolished. But the character of the space, is, if you stand here, it, it's really um, fragmented. It was so uh, abstract and it really had a quality. A quality that is totally unrelated to drug dealers, to uh, problems in the open space. A quality that was spatial and that everybody could see. And uh, now even the kind of fencing that is much higher than it used to be around these things. It's fragmented. The open space is fragmented. And I, I find it hard to read the quality of, of it. If you look that way, yeah, you can see the space is still how it was. What do you think about the fact that um, these, like this renovation here, that it won uh, all these prizes, the Dutch Design Awards and the European Union Miss van der Rohe Prize? Um, for the Balmer it came too late. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the, the lesson that uh, it's good that we now have learned that uh, we can... We can uh, these, these flats have an inherent quality that can survive and uh, that they also have a uh, they are, have an attraction and that it's worth keeping them that was an idea that was totally ignored for a long long time huh? we worked we were laughed at are you happy to be back? no no happy is not uh, <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, it is nice to see that it's, it would be sad. If it, if it had gone, it, uh, it would have been sad. In that sense, I really uh, am glad that, uh, that the developer and, and, and all architects and another architect, I forgot the name, has managed to, uh, to, uh, to pass it on to the next generation. And also just as a lesson, a lesson learned. Uh, but is it really passed on to the next generation? I mean, it used to be like social housing available to all. Oh, absolutely. But now, like, it's being—it's becoming like an no, investment. No, uh, it is now the museum, and and it's—you're uh, right. This is uh, God. I've walked those stairs so often because the lift would be broken so often, and and then we would just walk. This, this is the staircase of my dreams. We had some fights in here as well. Um, no, the, the lesson, 
uh, you're right. I agree with that. It's a shame that as a social has social housing, it hasn't it hasn't worked, and it could have easily done. Because who is living here now? It's not the people who bought the houses. It's again the people that rent the houses from the people who bought the houses. Uh, but um, there's nothing that's changed from this. So you could easily imagine this being social housing. There's no need for this to not be social. In a time when there is again an enormous housing shortage in the Netherlands, that's quite a loss. Could the Belmar have been taken care of in a different way? That is what the lesson should have been in the Belmar. You cannot make residential area just houses, no metro connection, well, later it came, no, no shopping mall. So the, the impracticalities of that make it so hard to live. And then it's an abstract block where people then find Hey, this abstract type of living goes well with the kind of an urban density and that urban density could have easily been added without demolishing anything. But you know the fact that you live with all these different people in the same kind of uh, flat, it equalizes. I think that is a very special social lesson that I have taken away and in that sense I feel quite disappointed with the world after. When I grew up here as a young kid, eh, we were, there were so many different people and we were all the same because we all had the same house, we all lived in the same space. It was like a big room that we all lived in. And um, that has, uh, my life has proven that, that, uh, that the world is not so uh, equal. <laughs> you know, I've moved out of the Belmer went to the high school and every step I made a lot of the diversity left <laughs> so a lot, in the end you go and travel places and you meet a lot of different people but the sense that everybody is in in the end equal and and uh, human is is not there in in a lot of yeah? so I think that is something that has um, has real value. The Belmer had real value in showing that diversity and equality is, it can, is overlapping so much. Venne Haakma-Wagener sketches a rather different and much more positive story of the Belmer compared to what still dominates the public opinion today, uh, while being also quite critical of both the Belmer and the Kleiberg regeneration. So we're then quite keen to hear what Owen Hatley would make of these developments. He's an author of various related books and holds some critical perspectives uh, on these issues. And we visited him in his home in Camberwell, South London, earlier this spring. A few years ago, you visited the, the Belmer Estate, yeah. or the Belmer neighborhood to the southeast of uh, central Amsterdam, together with uh, my field architecture uh, colleagues, uh, Mark and Michiel. Uh -huh. Do you remember what stuck with you when you were visiting here? I mean, it sort of goes back to what we were saying before about the differences between uh, the rest of Northwestern Europe and Britain, and that it was the same thing done much better. Um, you'd had incremental demolition, you know, there'd obviously been privatization, but these things had not had the same um, sense of, 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 of violence to the original ideas that there was so obviously in lots of British equivalents. Like, Thamesmead yeah. is a really good example here. Yeah. Like, um, I really recommend if you haven't just going to see what a mess they've made of Thamesmead. Mm. Um, like, really have no idea what they're doing whatsoever. Yeah. And successive kind of housing associations that have that have run it, sort of one after the other, have been absolutely clueless. Yeah. And I think on strictly formal grounds, they could learn quite a lot from what was done at the film. Um, but 
it seems to me to be a fairly similar project. It's a fairly similar thing of sort of removing what is considered a sort of monolithic, monotenure working class housing estate yeah. and trying to encourage people from different social classes and trying to encourage much more of it to be, you know, privately rentable and viable. Yeah. However, it's harder to get angry about it as a British observer because of the fact that you don't see it in the same way. When you go to Thamesmead, and when you go to the, the Haygate, uh, for that matter, and the Aylesbury, you can see that what's happening is really, really, really obnoxious. There's a real yeah. fuck you to that place that, that's happening mm. there. You don't matter. We don't care what's happening to you, and we're going to smash this place up. Because yeah. we think you're scum, and we think well, the place where you live is scummy. Yeah. And that's not how they officially talk, but that's what that's what that stuff says. Yeah. What's happening at the Bilma doesn't say that. It looks like mm. it's progressing... You know, slowly, incrementally, and with fairly high quality buildings and infrastructure, um, which I think may lead some British critics to being more sympathetic towards it than they would be otherwise. Certainly, that's yeah. the reaction that I had. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, they're, I mean, it's being done incrementally, but like slowly over the last like twenty years, mm, mm. demolishing the entire original mm, estate mm, mm. and replacing it by, I mean, what you have been describing as like this architecture of regeneration, right? Mm. Like this. Uh, the bright, shiny, optimistic, bulky, brightly coloured. Uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, it's you know, there are good and there's more than one way of skinning a cat. You know, yeah. and and those things are there, then they're done, and they're trying to issue the same signifiers. Yeah, but they're not done of anything like the same crassness and disruption. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's the same trend, but they, but those same trends I think are expressed very differently in different places. Yeah, the eventual end is probably the same. Yeah, um, and the parts of it that have been remained and refurbished were in far better condition and far better refurbished than, than mm. any British equivalents. Yeah. So Owen argues that the redevelopment of the Balmer isn't done with the same harshness as in the UK. And when we asked him to share his thoughts on the Kleiburg flat in particular, he elaborated on this point of view by comparing Kleiburg to other modernist housing projects like Keeling House and Balfour Tower in London and Park Hill in Sheffield. Well, I mean... Uh, I suppose it goes back to the original point. It's the same thing that's happening here. It's just nicer and more yeah. imaginative and more clever hmm. and probably more egalitarian. You know, with um, Keeling House or Balfour Tower or Park Hill, you know, the same thing happening of the people being kicked out and being yeah. sent to other peripheral estates and, you know, and, 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 and them sort of being written out of the story and then people moving in yeah. with much more money. But, I mean, the amount of money that it costs to buy a flat in Keeling House is astronomical. Um, you know, when they when they finish refurbishing Balfour Tower, almost certainly the flats are going to go for a million quid. Yeah. Um, you know that that. So there is a there is a big difference there. The idea that the London equivalents would go for like fifty thousand euros is it would be regarded in London as utopian. Yeah. Um, but it's exactly the same social process. Yeah. So I think that's in many ways sort of a sort of useful thing of like working out sort of where social democracy is now in places like the Netherlands. It's basically mm. doing neoliberalism nicely. Yeah, um, which is, I guess, in a place where neoliberalism is being done with enormous kind of cruelty and social damage, like here. Yeah, um, that's you know, um, it might seem attractive, but I think obviously we we should aim for something better than that. Yeah, and it, it's interesting how there was sort of leave-in interiors like this. The thing that comes to mind there is the way that with Park Hill, um, when they started um, transforming it. I think that the, the, the Urban Splash, its, its developers were still... There was still an idea that this stuff really wasn't fashionable. Um, 
it was around the time that the, the change was starting to happen, really. And every other time in which Urban Splash has taken over a council estate, mm. which they have in the Three Towers in, in Collyhurst in Manchester and with the Saxton Gardens estate in Leeds, they've completely stripped everything off mm. and then clad it. And in the case of, you know, I mean, we know from their chips building in uh, Ancoats in Manchester that their cladding sometimes has flammable printed on the underside, yeah. um, which uh, doesn't really bode well for the future of those two estates in Leeds right. and Manchester. But there was, you know, the, the, and, and so clearly with Park Hill that they were quite annoyed about the fact that they had to work with a listed, but listed building constraints. There's a great documentary about it where, like, one of them kind of has this kind of like, why can't we just paint it pink? You know, they're really annoyed about the fact they had to repair the concrete, even though they were getting loads of money from English Heritage to repair the concrete. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, they were really kind of clearly upset. And what they did with the eventual with the eventual building, you know, it's the, I mean, you know this, but it'd be useful for the programme maybe, you yeah. know, that, that just stripped out every single unit to the frame. Hmm. I mean, this is on quarter at Park Hill, so like, yeah. you know, Park Hill is huge. So this is one, the largest block of Park Hill, so about a quarter of the whole estate. The rest is still derelict 10 years later. Yeah. Um, so they stripped out everything from there and then put in, um, you know, brightly coloured aluminium panels. But then between putting in those brightly coloured panels, which now look incredibly naff, they now look so kind of circa 2005, they look like an AHMM building. Yeah. And so it's gone from being a building that I think has, you know, I think fairly been proven by history to be fairly timeless, um, now looks like it will always be 2007 yeah. in that building. Um, but the um, so they'll probably get it off but, soon. Yeah, right? well, I mean they can't. That's the thing, like because the brick's gone. So yeah. um, it would be so complicated to do. But one of the things that's interesting that then happens between them doing this between like two thousand seven and and nine when they're putting in these panels, what they're doing um, next, and they're actually moving people in and they're and they're fitting out the flats, is they're leaving the concrete interiors bare, mm. which of course is the exact opposite of how the building originally worked, which it had this, this sort of um, concrete and brick exterior. Yeah. Um, and inside, as always, of council Like wooded fittings. You, well, not so much wooded fittings, but like almost indifference about fit, fittings. Mm. I mean, you look around this, this is, a, this is a typical, like, I think relatively well-treated 50s um, council flat. Like, you know, it's not supposed to look chic, yeah, you know, as you can see from the wallpaper, um, you know, it's not supposed to be chic. Yeah. They was they, they were shells, which then residents could put, could do what they liked in. Yeah. The point was to offer them light and air and hygiene. Yeah. So you had a balcony, you were oriented towards the sun, and other than that, you could do what you liked. Yeah. Um, whereas in the new flat, um, everything has Beton Brew walls. Yeah. Um, which, of course, are enormously difficult for you then to kind of hang stuff on and so forth. You're then caught within someone else's kind of minimalist cheek aesthetic, yeah. um, which was absolutely not what Jacqueline and Ivor Smith were trying to do at all. Yeah. So, um, they did the same in Clayworth, actually. Yeah. So, and the I've, interiors are now with con- bare concrete. Exactly, yeah. which is fascinating. Um, but I think there, at least, it was probably, at least from what I know about about that scheme from Tom Wilkinson's article, that at least is in harmony with the exterior. Yeah. Or a Park Hill, which I think in general is a scandal for which people should be jailed um no i'm not joking i think yeah. i think we should be jailed for what happened yeah. at park hill um that um that there you know there was a hash up between there was there was a, there was a massive kind of mess between first wanting to make everything look really new labor and hmm and brightly colored and then oh we oh brutalism chic now okay well let's 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 keep the flats inside like this and let's yeah. not have them look like you know kind of luxury riverside show flats from 2005 which of yeah. course was what they desperately wanted them to be from the start yeah and that's just fashion yeah um, and, you know, fashion is fashion. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, they probably could yeah. do something much, 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 much worse. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, so I, I, well, I, actually, I don't approve of what they're doing, but I, yeah. but it is, um, you know, well, they could it, it, it could be considerably yeah, yeah. worse. Yeah. Well, what's worse maybe is actually demolishing it, like, and turning it into some like anonymous suburbia. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. should we be happy it has been saved? Well, I mean. You know, they could have built anonymous suburbia and then sold it for 50k. Yeah. Or they could have built anonymous so- for anonymous suburbia and then sold it for 500k. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is, you know, it is next to like a rapid transit station that can get you like around most of Europe within a couple of hours. That's you know, true. I mean, it's yeah. extraordinarily well connected to Bilner. Yeah. Um, so they could really have milked it. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I have mixed feelings. Yeah. Um, or, or like, should we embrace it? The fact that it shows that modernist architecture actually should, works. I don't think we should embrace it. No. I don't think that's that's really necessary. Right. And I, in many ways, it taps into a narrative which I think people are keen to push. Yeah. Which is that modernist architecture was not understood by the proletariat, who were stupid and traditional and were basically peasants yeah. and would rather live in their own shit. Or if not live in their own shit, live in their own garden, which is basically the same thing. Um, whereas, you know, we, the middle class intelligentsia, can understand this. Yeah. We know how to live in it. You know, um, we didn't put coal in our bath. No. Um, and that's bullshit. Yeah. I think absolute bullshit. Hmm. Uh, I think it's really dangerous. And I think probably the most dangerous thing, probably about Clyburg, is probably that it would reinforce that narrative. Yeah. Other than that, it seems quite distant from a lot of things that are happening here. But yeah. that is the common link. Or maybe that, that's what's saying it. I mean... Like it, like it shows that like selling it to a middle class will like refurbish it according to their own tastes mm. and like knows how to appreciate the original architecture mm-hmm. is actually making it a, a success rather than like this uh, dangerous failure. I mean, success is. I mean, you know, success is always defined by, yeah. you know, in the society we live in, success is defined by profit. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not being like you know, a, a, a vulgarly Marxist on this point. That is what's, you know, when, when people say something is a success, that's what they mean. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of housing estates in, 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 in Britain that are on the level of like, you know, and I think in many ways, the sort of discourse of utopianism that goes along because around modern architecture, to which I feel I've contributed to some degree, yeah. is um, part of the problem here because it, it suggests that their goals were so, um, so... Uh, sort of what's the word um, so exalted hmm. that um, that anything other than creating you know a utopian harmonious community that looks like in the paintings yeah. is a failure yeah. and of course in many cases especially for the councillors that commissioned them what those things were do, supposed to do was they were supposed to be decent housing with you know central heating and inside toilets and air and light yeah. and roofs that didn't leak yeah. Um, in reasonably coherent communities where you would be close to a school and a doctor's surgery and some shops and a bus station. Yeah. And that's and, 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 and that's what they're supposed to do, by and large. Yeah. Um, you know, architects might have thought that, you know, might have had their copy of the Earth complete and might have like, you know, had the idea that they were creating the Ville Radieuse. But I think most councillors who are always the, the kind of partners in this, you know, fifty percent of the story, yeah. Weren't interested in Utopia. They wanted to just build something ordinary that worked. Yeah. And and most housing built in that era works on that level. Yeah. Um, 
it's quite rare to have housing built in that area that doesn't work on that level. Yeah. Um, I suspect that probably from what I know about the Burma, that at some point it didn't work at that level. No. And that it had actually failed at that basic level, which is quite exceptional. And well, probably one reason why its story is so notorious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Hey, I'm, I'm also just curious about the fact that, like, this Gleibrochflat has now been kind of embraced by, like, the heritage world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also now, like, winning all these prizes. Like, mm-hmm. the renovation of it has, like, has won, like, several prizes, like, mm-hmm. that design awards, but also, like, the European Union uh, Mies van der Rohe Architecture Award. Yeah. Which kind of celebrates the renovation, but, like, doesn't acknowledge the original architect. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. And one of the things that I was saying to the you know that that I, I was outraged when Park Hill's renovation, or rather than renovation, as I always insist on pointing out, the mm-hmm. renovation of one quarter of Park Hill um, was nominated for the Sterling Prize. It was, yeah. you know, it was outrageous. But I was always quite glad that whenever it was mentioned, it was Park Hill designed by Jacqueline and Ivor Smith, yeah. refurbished by Studio Air Great Rest and Hawkinsbury. Right. Yeah. You know that, that there was always the primary credit given to to those two, which is fine because it's their fucking building. Yeah. Um, and if the same is not done with the Bilmer, obviously that's worrying. I think there's probably a little bit of a difference with the much more extensive renovations done by people like Lacaton and Vassal. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, right. this, the, the, this Kleiberg project is, you know, what they've, what, they've, what they've stripped it down to is something that quite closely resembles the building as it originally existed. Yeah. Well, as Lacaton and Vassal's work generally makes this, that building unrecognisable. Right. Um, so in that case, I think it's fair. I think it's, it's fair yeah. that like Lacaton and Vassal are now famous for what they've done in Paris and Bordeaux because, yeah. you know, that's, that's them, that's, that's their project. Um, and this is a little bit different. So Owen doesn't quite approve of the way Clybrook is being regenerated, but at the same time argues that it's still a nicer version of what's happening to its British equivalents, such as the Haygate estate and the Aylesbury estate in South London, or in particular the well-known Robin Hood Gardens estate, designed in a brutalist fashion by Alison and Peter Smithson, which is currently actually being demolished. What are your thoughts about it, that it's being demolished right now? I mean, does, do you feel, is that, yeah. does that hurt you? Or is, um, how do you perceive that? It's, been such a long time coming that it's a little bit you know it's been a dead place for so long yeah that i tend to get probably more excited about things like the elephant and castle because the community that's there is still there yeah and there's still a sense of political contestation there's still a sense basically to put it bluntly that we could win yeah which and at the Aylesbury, you mean? At the Aylesbury yeah. and at the, with the shopping centre. Right, yeah. Whereas with Robin Hood Gardens, that was lost a long time ago. Right. Um, so, you know, it was really a sort of extended stay of execution, which has been yeah. 11 years, I think, since it was first said that they were going to demolish it. Yeah, right. And, you know, and the, the time in between when for years it was being run down and no repairs were being made and nothing was being done to it and people were still living there. I mean, it was... It's getting sadder and sadder. Appalling, yeah. really, the way, yeah. that, the, way, the way that it was treated like that. So they would just sort of le- leave it there, half falling down while, the, while waiting for the fucking market to pick up. Yeah. It was grotesque. Like, like, obviously, you know, I'm a trained architectural historian, you know, I tend to look, th- look at things from an architectural perspective. But, um, you know, I, um, I find looking at what's happened in Robin Hood Gardens through an architectural perspective to be very misleading. Hmm. That what happened in Robin Hood Gardens is, 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 is for me quite straightforward. You have the Tower Hamlet, the main actor here is Tower Hamlets Council, yeah. which um, is one of the poorest boroughs in the, in the country, but one of the poorest boroughs in the country that, unlike a poor borough in the northeast or south Wales, has on its doorstep this gigantic um, financial centre in Canary Wharf. Yeah. Um, so it has the possibility of its land 
um, you know, becoming enormously valuable, something you can't just can't do in like Merthyr Tydfil or Hartlepool or whatever. So for it to keep no. itself afloat and to keep going at social programs, and to their credit, they do have extensive social programs. So in order to continue to do this, to continue being this kind of line of defence, because local authorities of some, some time ago sort of ceased to be active forces. They're sort of passive forces resisting stuff now, by and large, trying to sort of maintain a sort of residual welfare state for, for, for their population. So it's a no-brainer, really, to say, OK, well, we've got this council estate here. It's pretty low density. Yeah. Um, it's got this massive great big bit of green space in it, and it's literally opposite Canary Wharf. Mm-hmm. We can sell this, and we can sell it for pots of money, and we can, in the process, take the gamble that um, that we will be able to, via the kind of London mayor's percentage rules of affordable housing and social housing and so forth, we can try and get all of the social housing that was on the site on the new site, and the density will be quadrupled. We'll have loads of money in our coffers because we've sold it, and we'll have rehoused everyone. Yeah, That's what Robin Hood Gardens was about. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. it. Anything else that's about, is it about the Smithsons? Is it about streets in the sky? Is it about that ridiculous... Yeah, you know, a hill in the middle, which is ridiculous. Um, it's bollocks. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with that, and that did not enter Tower Hamlet's mind once. Yeah. and when building design, and I, you know, I, I certain amount of respect for the people in building design that were doing the petition that was launched in two thousand and seven to yeah. to save the building, but they completely ignored this as the line of argument. That the line of argument was and said, "This is a great architectural masterpiece," and actually, it wasn't. Yeah, like a lot of public housing isn't. You know, not everything has to be a masterpiece. But didn't like, despite like the the political background story, didn't like the constant blaming for uh, for these kind of like modernist housing states to be like failures. Didn't that pave the way for the demolition to some extent? Yes, of course it did, and and uh, it enabled. Um, it was a propaganda coup really yeah. for Tower Hamlets Council when they were trying to do what they did, because you had on the one hand people like you know Lord Rogers of Riverside and 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 you know. Zaha Hadid and Peter Eisenman and Alan de Botton all kind of lining up to sign this petition and talk about, you know, um, how important this building was and how it shouldn't be demolished, which then enabled them to be able to do... We, the council, are acting on behalf of the residents who who desperately want to leave this appalling, crumbling eyesore, while these lords and architects and so forth, you know, who would never live in it in a million years you know, are, are, are going around praising it. It enabled them to look like they were sort of fighting some class war on behalf of the residents, which, of course, is preposterous. Yeah. Because, you know, particularly as the rules on affordable housing changed and, um, and, and, and you know, the, 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 um, it became obvious that even sort of getting developers to do these percentages was quite was, was, was not succeeding because of viability yeah. assessments. That became pretty obvious that they weren't going to be able to rehouse everyone on yeah. the site, and they won't. The same um, with the Haygate. Is the same with the yeah. Haygate. But that... Um, that nonetheless, you know, that, that they could still they could still couch it in these terms, and the funny thing is, which of course they didn't realise, was that this this particular building being attacked coincided with the enormous reevaluation of brutalism as an architectural yeah. style and fashion, right? Um, which of course meant that there was a lot more public opposition to it than there would otherwise be. But do you think that if that like new wave of appreciation would have come slightly earlier? That like places like uh, Aylesbury Estate and I mean the Haygate Estate and Robin Hood Gardens could have been saved. Robin Hood Gardens, maybe, yeah, because of the fact that it is, you know, in the parlance, iconic. Yeah, um, the Haygate Estate isn't, and that's why the Haygate Estate and the Elephant Castle in general, I think, has been a more successful campaign. Is because it's not about architecture and it can't be about architecture because of the fact that the three buildings that really we're talking about in the Elephant, which is, yeah. um, you know, the shopping centre, the mm-hmm. Haygate, and the Aylesbury, yeah. are all deeply mediocre architecturally. Um, you know, people like the 20th Century Society, of course, 
you know, would, would like to see them preserved, but they know they could never campaign for them to be listed. It would be impossible. Yeah. Whereas I think the only reason that Robin Hood Gardens wasn't listed was extreme pressure from the council and the government yeah. um, being applied to English heritage. Um, you know, I've had all sorts of stories about, you know, sort of people being locked out of meetings and so on when there was the argument for that, when, when people were trying to get that listed in English heritage. Yeah. I think if there hadn't been that pressure, it would absolutely have been listed. Hmm. Um, on architectural grounds, those buildings are unlistable. So, um, whereas Robin Hood Gardens, I think, was wholly listable. Um, you know, much of the original fabric survived. It was, some of it was in good nick. It was a one-off project by, you yeah. know, internationally significant architects, one, one with significant, I think, problems, um, particularly in the way the public space around it was designed, yeah. which I think a decent renovation could probably have worked out. But, it, 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 you know, they, they, they were very, very different. So... Um, it's plausible that if Robin Hood Gardens had happened earlier, and if Tower Hamlets Council were a little bit more wily, mm-hmm. maybe they could have urban splashed it, as it were. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, which did happen with Keeling House, which was also on their watch in Bethnal Green, with Dennis Lesson's Keeling House, is that then they were able to um, sell it to an investor yeah. who now have it as luxury flats with penthouses on top that's gated from the rest of Bethnal Green. And um, that is not... That was not tried with Robin Hood Gardens. And actually, a lot of the um, people who were... It could have worked, maybe. <clears throat> Sorry, it could, it have, could it have worked. worked. Yeah. Um, I think at the time when it started, it was still a little bit implausible that people like that would live in Poplar. Now, with Balfour Tower and the Chris Street Market and so on, and the Crossrail Station being built, I think it would have been very, very easy for them to do it. What do you think about the fact that Keeling House has then been saved by like turning it into like luxury flats? <laughs> what you, I mean, that's what I think, really. Yeah, but it has been saved. It I has mean, been saved. Yeah, compared and, to Robin Hood Gardens. You know, as a sort of, with a sort of architectural hat on, it's kind of good that these things continue to exist. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I find it hard to be particularly exercised about that as kind of like hooray we've yeah. saved this building by completely eviscerating its entire social purpose yeah. at the exact point in which its social purpose is most necessary yeah so one could make and i think people people have made arguments on the basis of obsolescence mm. um but this isn't something like the zonestral sanatorium where it's like built for something you know totally um specific that yeah. we no longer need you know People in Rotterdam and Hilversum, was it Hilversum? Hilversum. Yeah. People in Hilversum, you know, no longer suffer in wide quantities from tuberculosis. You know, you don't actually need the Zonestral Sanatorium. If it's saved, it's saved purely as a monument. Yeah. Um, London needs council housing. Right. And it needs council housing probably more now than it has at any point since the 1950s. It has an enormous demand for, for, for council housing that's not being met. Um, and that's been true for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, since this population of London started going back up in the late 1990s, and it's now back up to its historic levels, there's been a huge gap yeah. um, for that. Um, so actually, we desperately need this stuff. Yeah. So it's very frustrating seeing, you know, A, seeing that stuff being taken out of the public sector, mm-hmm. and B, that be, you know, spurious historical arguments being made for it being taken out of the yeah. public sector. So, um, and they also painted the concrete. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> But do you think that like uh, our work, I mean, your books, our our blog, um, like kind of like play a role in this? I mean, we I have also know. I don't know. We have also like uh, spurred this appreciation of the last five to ten years. Right? Yeah. So you know that book, this brutal world. You know, yeah. and there's all these sort of books, sort of concrete concept, and all of these sort of like big, sexy brutalism books, with some yeah. enigmatic photos and sort of overheated writing and so forth. Um, 
those sorts of things, I do, you know, I'm creating the situation in which brutalism is sort of treated like Victorian housing was in the yeah. 70s, hmm. you know, as, as, as an important investment opportunity. And you have things yeah. like the modern house and all of the sort of infrastructure around that um, that's about selling these things as a, as a, as a product. Yeah. Um, and I do feel a degree of culpability for that. Um, that this brutal house book had, you know, great big quotes from militant modernism next to pictures, you know, along with like quotes from Anne Rand, you know, and and and, and I did think yeah. I didn't make myself clear enough, did I? Yeah. Um, and one reason why I wrote the Ministry of Nostalgia was sort of a little bit of a sort of Maoist self critique thing of like, you know, wanting to like make this point absolutely fucking clear yeah. that this is not about. You know, this is not about wow. Look at these big concrete things. Aren't they awesome? Yeah. Can I buy a flat there? You know that this was a, a social project. Yeah, and you know, I I, I I do feel a little bit that I probably have minor responsibility for for some of this. But I mean, it was happening without me. I just think I gave them some new cliches to use. They just announced they're going to put like part of the. Like part of the remnants of Robin Hood Gardens on show. Uh, oh, in the biennial. In the biennial. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I sort of find it hard to get that angry about that. I sort of think, yeah. You know, the, 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 it's locking the door after the horse has bolted. You know, it, 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 there's no, it doesn't really do anyone any harm. It's going anyway, it's gone. You know, like if a little fragment of it gets put in a fucking biennial to be looked at by wankers, I don't really care. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm really not bothered. Yeah. Um, so with large modernist housing estates either being demolished or being saved by a coalition of conservationist and real estate companies to then be sold for very high prices, where will we all live in the future? It'll be something that that um, is able to um, harness the energies of popular democracy and that's able to accommodate itself to people's changing needs and desires. Yeah. That is also able to do things on a proper scale. Yeah. And... You know, I, I admire a lot of the kind of cooperative stuff that you get here, and you do still get it, amazingly enough. I, last week I was in Leeds to look at a housing co-op called Lilac, which is, you know, built impeccably sustainable materials, run cooperatively as a community land trust. Absolutely exemplary. It's the size of a postage stamp. Yeah. And it's actually, when we actually buy the sums of a cooperative housing, it's pretty large. It's like several blocks. Mm. But, I mean, it's the size of this estate. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, and people who are kind of fans of community land trust and cooperatives keep talking about yeah. it as this kind of you know great project, which it is. It's a great project, but as if this is an alternative to the mass housing of the of the twentieth century. And it was like, well, you know, in the twentieth century, in the mid twentieth century, something like that was built every fucking day. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, and and but it can be a source of inspiration, and, then, and, right? And and and, and that's exactly well, that's exactly what's interesting to me about that era is the fact that the scale of it. Um, you know, showed that you can take something out of the market and do it on a huge scale. Yeah. And it'd be pretty successful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I find that in many ways a more useful model than being able to kind of go, well, look at this one thing where they've managed to take something out of the market. Yeah. And okay, so it's, you know, five blocks of flats in a tiny corner of suburban Leeds. Yeah. But, you know, we could do this everywhere. It's like, well, it's very hard to make that argument because it's interesting the fact that, that patently you can't do that everywhere. Yeah. You need 
bureaucracy, you need economies of scale, you need mass production, you need all of those things, so you'll actually be able to sort out that problem for a, for, a, yeah. for a large and rising population. Yeah, but the synthesis is interesting, right? I mean, this is a new model that works currently, and mm. combining it with the inspiration of, like, the scale of yesterday. Well, I think that's where, you know, I mean, I, 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 I kind of hope, I was going to say I think, I hope is probably more accurate, that lots of the, that, that, that people around... Um, Jeremy Corbyn and around the left of the Labour Party will, will become interested in, 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 in things like that because yeah. there are people within it who I think um, have a very straightforward, like, we need to build loads of council housing approach, yeah. which I think is fine up to a point. And then there's people in it who are like, you know, we need to we, we need to learn from those mistakes and we need to do something more like this thing in Leeds, which again is, is fair enough. Bring these things together. You know, yeah. this is what dialectics is all about. Let's say that there's an election next week, which I think currently Labour would win and Jeremy yeah. Corbyn would become Prime Minister. And if that, you know, after that election held next week, they then said, right, we're now going to build, you know, half a million council houses and we're going to do it using exactly the same mechanisms that yeah. we did in the 1960s. It would be a bit of a shame. Yeah. But I think it would be much more plausible than we're going to build half a million housing co-ops hmm. because when you have when, with something like that, you know, you need um, you need personnel in a way that's quite different. You need people that are willing to commit their entire life yeah, yeah. to that project, yeah. which is what all of those sorts of elective, you know, kind of small-scale solutions are all about. They're all about people that, 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 that want to live the dream, you know, the people that want to be completely part of this for their whole life. They want yeah. to, you know, they, 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 they don't want a sort of division between that and their work and the rest of their lives. Most people do. Yeah. I do. But it has to do with... I don't want to build my own house. No, me You know, I really don't yeah. care. But it has um, to do with the contemporary belief in the pop-up, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Like the small-scale self But the interest, the interest in that comes from... It's a thing that can be done. Yeah. And at the moment, we're talking... In the abstract, if we're talking about a local authority or something similar, being able to build thousands of houses, yeah. they're not doing it. They've not done it since the early 1980s. Yeah. Um, we know that they have done it because they did it for about 70 years. Yeah. Um, and we know that it can be quite successful because the places that, 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 that they built are still lived in and are still quite popular. And some of them, you know, are now, um, you know, let out to private tenants, which yeah. is, describes the place we are in right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... You know, on that level, one can argue for that stuff. But in the present, if it's like saying, you know, let, we want to do something now, you can't do that. So that's where you get things like Assemble. That's where you get housing yeah. cooperatives. That's where you get pop-ups. Because it's actually something that can be done in the present. Um, now, the problem with that is the idea that all of these things will sort of reach some sort of critical mass, where there'll be enough of them, yeah. that it will cause genuine qualitative change for the majority. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that's plausible. Yeah. Um, but I think that their work has created insights and experiments that any um, that any new mass program would have to learn from. But I think yeah. we simply straightforwardly need mass programs because we have a mass problem in a mass society. Yeah. Well, maybe we should, I think maybe we should leave it at that, at that <laughs> wonderful <laughs> solution. <laughs> Thank you so much, Owen, Thanks. for uh, all your comments and insights. So we could have ended this episode uh, on Owen's call to action, uh, but I'm just curious to hear what Mark and uh, Charlie actually think of the Kleiberg redevelopment after listening to uh, Fenna and Owen. So Mark, what are your uh, thoughts? Mm. I Well, um, from the looks of it, I really like it um, because it's nicely done in the style of retro hipster modernism, you know, with the, uh, the exposed concrete, the, 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 the dark wooden railings uh, on the balconies. But I think this is also part of the problem, uh, this coming into fashion again of modernism, because it's mostly about uh, stylistic principles of modernism. And 
not so much about the humanist or, or, or social agenda that was actually also fueling it at the same time of creating affordable housing for the masses. Um, especially because if you if we look at Kleiburg today, you really see that the building has become a commodity, uh, quite literally. Because a lot of the apartments have turned into 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 buy to lets, into profit machines, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like follow on from that. You know, the, the I think that the decision to re-expose the concrete after it was painted white says a lot more broadly about late, late capitalist aesthetics that it's much more about the signifiers of of authenticity rather than actual you know the the nitty-gritty work of actually building up an authentic um sociability you know and uh, i i i think this kind of feeds into overall why why it's such a fascinating example um, I, I concur quite a lot with what Owen said. Really, you know that it's um, it's it's better than it's better than what's happening elsewhere, but it's it's still just a softer form of something that's quite insidious. All right. Well, thank you guys for your uh, comments. Uh, really you interesting. Right. Thank you. Nice yeah. yeah. And before we listen to some uh, more tunes by SBMG, I would like to thank uh, Fena Hakma Wagner and Owen Hetherly for taking the time to talk to us. And to remind you that we still need your support to be able to continue the Field Architecture podcast. And you can visit fieldarchitecture.com to find out how. Uh, this is Unana. So why no more cocky akada? Why no more cocky baby plant my bossa? So I need that they come marika. Set it so deep for us, my set a strap. She said, Unana, Unana, Unana. She said, Unana, Unana, Unana. We willen checken of die hip hop man Ik pit nog en heb door dat ik geslikt word Wist nog dat ze contact met mijn lip Van mijn dek met zo'n vieze kom door de lipgloss Man ik laat de springen ze gaat kipfrost Schat ik weet al lang al dat je dit zal Ik ben horny porny ik geef horny dog Ik zeg de luister maar piefs die door ik niet Zo so wijn op mijn kokkie elke dag Wijn op mijn kokkie baby plet mijn bassa Zo so niet dat ik kom maar ik ga Zet het zo diep volgens mij is het een strak She said who I like